Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover George Kreil, a surgeon maybe best known for the instruments that bear his name. But did you know that he was also a founding member of the Cleveland Clinic? We'll talk about his life and works, which included having a big impact on the treatment of surgical shock, and cover the early history of the Cleveland Clinic. All this and more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. George Washington Kreil was born on November 11, 1864, in a little town called Chile in the state of Ohio. He grew up on a farm as the fifth of eight children and started school in a one-room schoolhouse two miles from his home. The historical record doesn't indicate whether this was uphill both ways. Kreil went on to attend the Northwestern Ohio Normal School, later called Ohio Northern University, and worked his way through school by teaching at elementary schools. Attaining his teaching certificate, Kreil was appointed principal at Plainfield School. Now, so far, this doesn't sound like the start of a legendary surgical career, does it? Well, a local doctor named A.E. Walker got him interested in medicine, taking Kreil with him to see patients, and lending him his medical textbooks to peruse. In Kreil's own autobiography, which is sadly out of print, he talks about witnessing the, quote, quilling, end quote, of an obstetric or pregnant patient. Let me explain. This is when you blow snuff, or pulverized tobacco, into the patient's nose through a goose quill, causing her to sneeze, which is supposed to encourage labor. I've heard a lot of ways of inducing labor, but that's a new one on me. I guess these experiences were influential on Kreil, because he started in 1886 at the Wooster Medical School in Cleveland, later known as Western Reserve Medical School. This was an inexpensive school, which only met in summer sessions. Kreil chose this because, in his own words, quote, it was the cheapest, and would allow me to carry my medical work collaterally while serving in the winter as principal, end quote. He graduated with highest honors in July of 1887 and went on to serve as a house officer, sort of intern, in Cleveland under Dr. Frank Weed, dean of the medical department and a well-respected surgeon. It was while training here that an incident occurred that would influence the course of his career. A patient who was also his colleague was hit by a streetcar and had to have both legs amputated. Kreil kept a bedside vigil and watched his friend slowly succumb to shock. In his words, quote, I was overwhelmed by my lack of understanding of what was happening and baffled over the inefficiency of treatment. The cold, sweaty skin and the pallor, the fading pulse, the high pulse rate, the sunken eyes and dilated pupils fixed themselves in my memory, end quote. This experience was the impetus for his career focus on shock. Now let's take a quick minute here to define shock. By shock, I don't mean surprise. This is a medical term, and although there are a few different causes, they all share the same basic concept. The organs and tissues of the body are not receiving an adequate flow of blood, leading to insufficient delivery of oxygen and nutrients. Got that? Okay, let's keep going. So following his training, Kreil joined Dr. Frank E. Bunce and Dr. Weed in private surgical practice. He would spend three months at the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University, studying physiology, histology, and pathology to prepare himself to study shock. He also took the classic trip abroad that so many surgeons did in 1892 and 1895, working with Bill Roth in Vienna, see Podcast 39, and Victor Horsley, an early pioneering neurosurgeon in London. In Horsley's lab, Crow met Charles Scott Sherrington, a physiologist also interested in studying shock. Returning to his practice in Cleveland, Crow would study shock using dogs as an animal model. 
This was a bit controversial, and he was attacked in Life magazine for it. But there were results that would have a huge impact on medicine. Crowell realized that blood loss was only one variable in shock, and that animals experienced lowered blood pressure, which was attributed to fluid loss, a decrease in vascular resistance, and heart failure. Giving saline, or basically salt water, given IV, restored blood pressure, but too much would overload the system. He also recognized the importance of the vasomotor center in the brainstem, which is a part of the brain that controls blood pressure, but was mistaken when he concluded that the vasomotor center could become exhausted in the presence of shock. Crowell showed that prevention of shock was of far greater importance than its treatment, and was a strong advocate of preoperative assessment, intraoperative monitoring of vital signs to identify shock early, and the performance of atraumatic and bloodless surgery combined with safe anesthesia. Now, interestingly, it was actually his lifelong friend, Harvey Cushing, see podcast 42 and 43, who introduced him to the blood pressure cuff on a Christmas visit in 1901. Some other important findings came out of his work, which accumulated in an influential publication called Blood Pressure in Surgery, which was published in 1903, which documented the results of some 251 of his dog experiments. Crowell showed that the current treatments of shock, which included alcohol and strychnine, made shock worse. He also demonstrated that adrenaline could be used to resuscitate animals, and that the blood became acidotic, meaning it became more acidic, and that bicarbonate solution could be used to reverse this, and many of these principles are still used today. Now, but my favorite thing to come out of the study of shock, though, has to be the pneumatic rubber suit. This was used to decrease hypotension, or low blood pressure, in patients that had to be operated on in a sitting position by basically squeezing the lower body. He presented this in 1903 in a joint talk in Boston with Cushing and was met with skepticism. But the suit's design would go on to have some significant impacts. During World War II, Crow would serve as an honorary consultant to the Air Force of the U.S. Army and working with the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, helped to develop the aviator's anti-gravity suit for pilots flying in the stratosphere to prevent blackouts also known as G-suits. Now, if you recall, Goodyear also played a role in the development of surgical gloves by Halstead, see podcast 35. The suit would also be used in the Vietnam War to stabilize patients with hemorrhagic shock during transportation uh, by Lieutenant Colonel Burton Kaplan. Although they would prove to be too expensive and cumbersome for use in the field, Kaplan would take the idea and use it to create, in 1972, the military anti-shock trousers, which have become today's anti-shock trousers. I'll post some pictures on Twitter. So let's talk about some of Crowell's other surgical accomplishments. One area that became known for was thyroid surgery. Goiters, which is an enlargement of the thyroid gland, which lies in the neck, was endemic in the Midwest of the U.S. at the time. Goiters, which comes from the Latin word gutter for throat, are caused by a malfunctioning thyroid gland. The thyroid requires iodine, to work properly, and iodine is an essential dietary mineral. In some areas, like the Midwest, there's little iodine in the soil. This is also common in mountainous regions and remote inland areas, because seafood tends to be a good source. This is the reason why there is iodized salt, which is a way of supplementing everyone's diet to contain sufficient iodine. This didn't start in the U.S. until the 1920s. Now, because of this endemic goiter, Krauss saw a lot of patients with goiter performing over 25,000 thyroidectomies over his career. It's been said that there was a day in 1930s where he did 32 in just one day. Patients would often present with acute toxic goiter, meaning the gland is producing too much hormone, and if it's manipulated surgically, it can cause a sudden release of more hormone, leading to something called a thyroid storm, 
which can be fatal. Crow believed that environmental and emotional stimuli could trigger this, and so he would tell patients that they would just be receiving an inhalation treatment and some morphine, which was really the induction of anesthesia. By inducing anesthesia in a non-traumatic way, he had greater success in removal of the thyroid, but there was no informed consent. You can certainly imagine you wouldn't get away with that now. Now, Crow was also known for being a pioneer in what is called the radical neck dissection. This is the removal of all the lymph nodes on one side of the neck, or so-called on-block removal. He realized that cancers of the head and neck would first spread to the lymph nodes in the neck, and that by removing them, you could prevent spread of the tumor. He was the first to describe radical neck dissections in a paper in 1906 published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. In it, he describes 132 operations, and his surgical approach laid the foundation for the modern surgical treatment of head and neck cancers. Crow was also known for performing the first successful transfusion of blood from one human to another in the U.S. He believed that blood transfusions were better than saline to prevent shock. In August of 1906 at St. Alexis Hospital in Cleveland, he made a temporary arteriovenous shunt, meaning a connection between the artery and vein, using the principles showed to him by Alexis Carell, see podcast 20, on a patient. This was a 23-year-old man with postoperative bleeding and sepsis following nephrotomy for nephrolithiasis, meaning cutting into the kidney to remove stones. And he transfused him twice, on post-op days 5 and 14, and he made a full recovery. Cryo later invented a silver cannula to improve efficiency so transfusions could be done quickly in an emergency. Amazingly, it would be nearly 30 years before transfusions would be widely practiced, due to what Cryo called, quote, the inertia of the human race, end quote. Okay, one more thing about his surgical innovations. Kral noticed that the quality of the anesthetics provided, which was typically done by surgical residents, varied significantly in quality. The only one he allowed to provide anesthesia during his elective cases was Agatha Hodgins, his longtime nurse. In 1915, Kral and Hodgins established the first ever school of anesthesiology at Lakeside Hospital. They reduced operative mortality from 6.8 to 1.9%, and surgeons and nurses from around the world would come to be trained by Agatha Hodgins, who would go on to be the founder of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Alright, let's shift gears a bit and talk about Crowell's war experience. Now, he was a member of the Medical Reserve Corps during the Spanish-American War, fought in 1898. He served in Puerto Rico as a brigade surgeon and described sanitation as a strategy for reducing illness among the soldiers. In 1915, he served as the surgical director of the volunteer American Ambulance in Paris during World War I quick aside here. So ambulance in this instance means field hospital or temporary movable hospital in French, which comes from the Latin ambulant, meaning to walk, as in ambulatory care, a walk-in clinic, or to ambulate, meaning to walk around. Eventually the word ambulance was used for the vehicles that brought the sick and injured to these hospitals, which gives us our modern use of the word ambulance. Now Crowell would later organize the unit from Lakeside Hospital, U.S. Army Base Hospital Number 4, remember Cushing's was number five, and was with the first detachment of the expeditionary forces that arrived in France on March 25, 1917. Now, this experience in the military field hospitals of World War I may have inspired him to form a clinic that brought together many different specialties in one place to work together. Along with Dr. William Lower, urology, Fred Bunce, general surgery, and John Phillips, internal medicine, they founded the Cleveland Clinic. Borrowing money from the Cleveland Trust Bank, they established it as a non-profit with a mission statement of 1. Better care for the sick, 2. 
investigation of their problems, and three, further education of those who serve. The dedication address was given by William Mayo on February 26, 1921, and Crowell served as director from its opening in 1921 until 1940. Unfortunately, the history of the Cleveland Clinic can't be told without talking about the clinic fire. On May 15th of 1929, nitrocellulose x-ray films stored in a basement room of a clinic building spontaneously combusted, possibly because they were exposed to heat from a nearby light bulb, and toxic nitrogen peroxide fumes and carbon monoxide spread throughout the building. 123 people were killed, including one of the founders, John Phillips, and Charles Locke, head of neurosurgery and a Cushing trainee. Locke died from delayed effects, probably a lung injury, after assisting in the rescue of staff and patients. Cushing took an evening train from Boston to Cleveland when he heard the news to assist. Crowell later wrote, quote, Regarding Cushing's visit to the clinic following our catastrophe, I cannot say too much for his helpfulness at such a time of distress. He interested himself in every detail of the disaster and did everything he possibly could to aid us, end quote. The fire happened on a Wednesday morning, and it was said that Crowell was back operating on Friday to encourage his staff to carry on despite the tragedy. Here's what he said about it, quote, Knowing that the clinic was not destroyed, but rather that from the ruins will arise an even better institution, which will be dedicated as a sacred memorial to the dead, end quote. Of course, many of you may now know the Cleveland Clinic is a world-class organization. Now, in his 70s, Crowell developed bilateral cataracts in his eyes and gradually lost his vision. In 1940, he underwent bilateral cataract excision, and his right eye became infected and had to be removed. Two years later, in 1942, he developed endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valves, and the next year he had a stroke and died shortly thereafter on January 7, 1943, at the age of 78. He was buried in Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland, Ohio, the same as Cushing. George Washington Crowell was known to be a devoted family man and never failed to tell his children a story in the morning before taking them to school, and his family was equally devoted, calling him the chief. One of his sons would actually go on to be a surgeon as well, George Crowell Jr. His legacy lives on in the Crowell Mosquito Clamp and Crowell Forceps, two surgical instruments still used today. A World War II U.S. Liberty ship was named after him, the SS George Crowell, and there is even a crater on the moon named after him. I swear this is true. Now, as we often do, let's end with a quote on his views on medical education. Quote, Teach us to view our patients as a whole and especially it should teach the surgeon gentleness. It should teach us that there is something more in surgery than mechanics, and something more in medicine than physical diagnosis and drugs, end quote. So that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we're going to take a big leap in time and place to meet a doctor who is sometimes called the father of surgery, Abu al-Kazim al-Zahari, a surgeon from the 10th century. Lots of interesting history in that one, so tune in. In the meantime... Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.